there's a word for this, this glupinka. It's like the really extremely deep Russia, you know, like a lot of people don't have toilets, you know, running water, no gas. It's extremely like, it's like 19th century living. Julian Colling is a freelance journalist based in Moscow. So you can see the extreme amount of uh, inequality this country has. It's, it's just insane. The country has one of the fastest growing number of billionaires. And at the same time, yeah, you have uh, people who are living with, with nothing, basically. Julian's been reporting on the wealth gap between the rich and poor in Russia, which has steadily grown since the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. For most of that time, Vladimir Putin has been either the president or prime minister of Russia. And as of this week, he could remain in power for 16 more years. Russia's parliament voted it into law months ago, but a week-long ballot by the public approves changes to the nation's constitution by a landslide. Most political analysts think he wanted the sort of the gloss, the veneer of popular approval to legitimize this move, which is pretty brazen. A host of amendments are up for consideration, but the most important amendment would do an end run around Russia's presidential term limits, allowing Vladimir Putin to stay in power until 2036. So often, we in the international media report on how President Putin's leadership affects other countries, Ukraine, Syria, the United States. But in today's episode, we're zooming in on Russia itself on how Putin's economic policies have widened the inequality gap and why he's still so popular despite that. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. Russia's government is an oligarchy. That means political and economic power in the country are intertwined. Later in this episode, we'll hear from a professor who explains just how that works. But first, we're going to start with Julian, the journalist, about the constitutional changes that voters just approved in Russia last Wednesday. It was a week-long vote to prevent polling places from getting too crowded during the coronavirus pandemic. Russians selected a blanket yes or no on a whole range of amendments from promising social welfare benefits to defining marriage as being between a man and a woman to significantly expanding Putin's power. It should be said, Parliament already passed the constitutional changes in question and a nationwide vote was not required. But Putin insisted on it. It's been clear from the start, I think, once this package of amendments were brought in January, that uh, the most important thing in, in these amendments is to reset how the clock to, to zero, basically. That is, the term limit clock. Until now, Russian presidents could only run for two terms, and Putin's second one ends in 2024. In last week's vote, Russians agreed to give Putin two more chances at the ballot box. They didn't erase term limits from the Constitution. They just granted him an exception. It's still going to be two terms maximum, but uh, if he resets his clock, it means in 2024, he can run again twice. So twice six years. So that would bring until uh, 2036. So uh, yeah, this is really impressive because he's going to be like 83 years old. He will have ruled for, yeah, 36 years. So it's quite enormous. So what is the rationale for this amendment? How do Putin and his supporters justify resetting this clock? 
as you put it. There was a bit of theatrics. Two National Assembly deputies proposed, please, Vladimir Putin, stay with us uh, some more. We really need you. There's only you who can do this job. Where did they say that? Was this in Parliament? Where did that happen? Yeah, exactly. It was in the Parliament. It was like a session. And there was really, it was a show, basically, because... Uh, a deputy who came forward and said, OK, we we would like to propose these amendments, blah, blah, blah. And also, uh, please, Vladimir, stay with us because, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> you're so great. Neither you nor me. No one knows what will happen in 2024, what the situation will be like, whether it will be necessary to use this opportunity. I don't know if Vladimir Putin is ready himself to take part in the election. But what I know for sure is that the very existence of an opportunity for the current president to get re-elected, given his major gravitas, would be a stabilizing factor for our society. And so, of course, uh, Putin came like 20 minutes later, out of nowhere. And said, okay, I accept what, you, what you're saying. Wow. And so basically, why did they do this? It's because, once again, Putin is really well-viewed in the elites, and all politicians basically are quite uh, sat- you know, satisfied with him. Uh, so, yeah, they, they thought that he was the only guy who could uh, you know, take the country forward. And Putin also has a, quite a sense of this as well. He, I think he genuinely believes that he's the only guy right now who can lead this country. There is still uh, a lot of support for Putin. More than 50% this is for sure. Like, nobody's denying this, basically. Why? Because uh, people from older generations, there is a big generational gap, of course. So people who knew the Soviet times, they are still loyal to him because uh, he's viewed as someone who stabilized the country, you know, and basically put it back on its feet. My colleagues and I support Putin running again, of course. There's no one to replace Putin at the moment. People like him, and we don't see any alternative anyway. They knew a lot of crises, so they want to have a really stable system in where there's not a risk of a revolution, of war, you know, of something like this. So Putin really didn't have to do much to... Uh, you know, call to these people and, and touch them in a way. He just said, I'm stability, so let's let's try to work together, basically. And once again, a majority of Russians are, you know, sensible to this. They prefer this than any instability and change. Even though it's not helping them everyday life, there is a paradox in Russia, basically, over this. So one place that that paradox is very acutely seen is in the handling of the coronavirus. So I went to your Twitter feed and you write a few days ago, in Russia, the economic consequences of COVID-19 have brought to light an ultra unequal country Mm -hmm. with a tiny social safety net and where power seems definitively cut off from its base. So tell me about the towns that you went to. What are they like? Describe them for me. So where I went, one of the cities is Tolyati. It's quite interesting because it's a really Soviet city. So it's really tailored around a big factory. And there, basically, the they don't have anything else. There is no economy, basically. So that factory started cutting a lot of jobs since 2008. They cut, I think, at least 50,000 people. So a lot of people lost their jobs, and now they are struggling to find uh, other job. And if you put the coronavirus on top of that, uh, all the small businesses like cafes, you know, shops or whatever, uh, they had to close down for at least two months. So people had no revenue at all, and the, the state is not helping them. So they, they have almost no benefits when, when they lose their jobs. You know, it's like $100 per month, basically, for just one year. 
She said, what can you do with $100? I mean, even in Russia, it's really not much. Remember, Julian said the factory in Toliati started laying off workers in 2008. That was 12 years ago. No new industries have replaced it. He says the people struggling have been unable to unionize, find new jobs, or receive government assistance. Toliati is still one of the poorest cities in Russia. Julian went to another one as well. The, the, the second city I went to, Astrakhan, is a southern city, so it's really different, but it's really decrepit there. The, the buildings are quite decrepit, and there's not much economy going on in the region. And I heard from a deputy there that 50% of the workers are unofficial, paid basically under the table, and it's not an official job, there's no contract. So, of course, if you lose a job like this, you don't have anything because it's not, it's not official. There's no record of it. There are so many regions who are struggling in terms of pensions. Pensions are still really low. I raised the age of retirement in 2018, which was really unpopular, of course, because the life expectancy is still really low in Russia for men. So they were like, okay, you're going to push the retirement at 65, but we die at 65. So basically, you, you want us to die at work. The age of retirement in Russia used to be 60. This five-year increase upset a lot of workers. All these elements can start to explain uh, what type of country Russia is. And uh, once again, uh, maybe it's my trope. I'm attached to social stuff. I'm French. But uh, they should really start doing more to redistribute wealth better because it's just uh, insane how, how the distribution of wealth works in Russia. It's, uh, it's incredible. and It's really bad. Julian described what this inequality looks like on the ground. But where does it come from? And why has it been allowed to carry on for so long? To answer that question, we turn to Greg Uden. I'm professor of political philosophy at the Moscow School of Social and Economic Sciences. He studies political and economic inequality in Russia and how the two feed off each other. And some of the statistics he described are staggering. Well, Russia is one of the global leaders in terms of economic inequality. According to the uh, numbers released by Credit Suisse in 2019, 1% of the richest people in Russia control 58% of the wealth. And top 5% control 75% of the wealth. And that's a significant rise from what we had in the late Soviet years. So this trajectory of rapidly rising inequality is peculiar to Russia, and it's actually what differentiates Russia from many, many other post-socialist countries where the rise of inequality hasn't been nearly that rapid. Post-socialist countries are ones that transitioned from communism to capitalism in the 90s, when the Soviet Union collapsed. Professor Yudin says that Russia's way of modernizing during that time created an economic wedge that's grown wider and wider ever since. In 2016, the top 1% owned over two-thirds of the country's wealth. But not far from the wealthy metropolises, there are around 20 million people living below the national poverty line. That's more than one-tenth of the population surviving on less than $200 a month. Professor Yudin blames Putin's policies. Well, there's a number of policies that might be a real contribution to this rise of inequality. Putin's system is a neoliberal economic system built on the loyalty of his cronies, who are basically oligarchs controlling the country. So the whole country is run by a group of several billionaires. There are also specific policies. 
like for instance the flat income tax rate has been in effect until very very recently that was one of the first measures taken by Putin when he came to power back in 2000 so we had this flat rate of 13% for everyone just two weeks ago we changed it but this is of course not a real change he has added a small increment to 15% for those who earn uh, above 5 million rubles uh, a year which is roughly 3 to 5% of, of the population so basically that, that this is still the flat rate which is quite uncommon of course this is one of the very very few countries in the world where you have the flat rate The flat tax rate means poor and rich Russians contribute equally to the government's coffers. Of course, it's a bigger burden for people who are already struggling to buy food and shelter. Many Russians have become increasingly dependent on loans, which Professor Yudin calls consumer credit. For many people engaging in consumer credit, it means that they are kind of borrowing from their own future. So they need stability. Russia's central bank says consumer debt grew by 25% in the past year. And the last thing they would uh, want to happen, of course, is to lose their job. Now they become dependent from their employers uh, because the employers threaten to fire them if they are not loyal enough. That becomes particularly obvious in the cases of the national vote, such as one we had last week, for instance. This vote was largely secured by the employers forcing their employees to go to the polling stations and vote. And that was, of course, done under those threats of firing those people. Yet another mechanism that makes people dependent on their poors, but also on the state, is the structure of their wage. Professor Yudin explains that the way workers are paid has changed. They now get less of their money through their salary and more of it through bonuses, which their employers can change at the last minute. Professor Yudin says this has left workers open to intimidation. And this is what they use to blackmail the employees, telling them, well, if I don't fire you for not going to the polling stations, for instance, then at least I will cut your salary in the next period. And that will immediately affect the well-being of your household because everyone knows that you are deep in, in consumer credit. This is how the economic inequality is transformed into, into political loyalty. We see this unequal power distribution in Russia's bureaucracy. It's the largest country in the world in terms of territory. There are more than 80 regional districts. But it's the central government, not the voters, who control them. It's not possible to be a governor without direct approval from Kremlin. So they are willing to be held accountable not by their voters, but by Moscow, by the Kremlin. In Russia, there is growing discontent about this over-centralization. And in many cities, people are demanding the power to elect their mayors, because in almost all Russian cities, mayors are not elected by the population, but appointed once again by Kremlin. So this is an extreme concentration of political and economic power. Putin is the one who created that policy of concentrated power. In his first year as president, he changed the system of federalism 
to give the Kremlin more control over regional governments. But Professor Yudin says Putin will have a hard time maintaining this level of bureaucratic control, even if he does stay in office for another 16 years. We see cleavages in the, in the population emerging now. One of them, of course, uh, the cleavage between the elderly people and the rest, so that now the support for the president is concentrated in the elderly groups, whereas the rest is getting further and further alienated from the regime, and this is particularly true of the youngsters. Now, second important cleavage, Putin has been in control of the uh, state-run television all the time and was able to produce the worldview to make people loyal to him. But now people are getting engaged into different kinds of communication. They engaged in social networks. So this is a major change because whereas the elderly people stick to television, other portions of population are now getting information from various channels. So the voters seem to be divided between the older generations and the younger ones, the people who watch TV news, which is state-run, and those who don't. It bears repeating that, as Julian said, Putin's approval rating is still over 50 percent. And that's after the coronavirus pandemic hurt his reputation. For much of his time in office, Putin's popularity has soared. There was even a stretch of time where his rating was consistently above 80 percent. So Professor Yudin, with his skepticism, is in the minority. But he says that cynical contingent of Russians is growing. One thing you have to keep in mind uh, if you've never been in Russia is that people are completely distrustful of uh, each other here. The common sense here is that things cannot be changed because Putin has done a lot to persuade the people that it is bad everywhere. And it immediately paralyzes uh, imagination, immediately paralyzes any kind of project to, to transform uh, the society of the better. And this is exactly what is at stake now, because Putin wants to stay frozen forever. So this I find completely unacceptable. And of course, people like me are willing to play part in transforming this society to making Russia one of the global leaders, making Russia a place where people would want to go, where people would want to leave, uh, a place where new prospects for the world are developed. But in order to do that, we have to have a real change in the elites. Otherwise, we are not getting forward. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Priyanka Tilvey, with Amy Walters, Dina Kispe, Ney Alvarez, Alexandra Locke, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is The Take's sound designer. Natalia Aldana manages our social media pages. That's AJ The Take on Twitter and Instagram. Stacey Samuel is our executive producer, and Graylin Brashear is Al Jazeera's head of audio. Special thanks to Michelle Mir. We'll be back. <laughs>